Hello and welcome to The Brand Called You. I'm Sandeep Tyagi, your host, and the brand we are speaking to today is Mark Brewer. He's the president and CEO of Central Florida Foundation. He spent a career in just uh, not just Central Florida Foundation, but also several other not-for-profit organizations around the country. Welcome to our show, Mark. Thank you, Sandeep. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's kick off uh, with uh, the place where you have uh, you've called home for 23 years, Central Florida Foundation. What is uh, the foundation and what does it do? So it's a very unique place where we bring together strategic philanthropy and measurable social good in the community. And we try to address complex social problems here sometimes. And that gives us the ability with our partner fund holders here, who are all the families and individuals that establish funds at the, at the foundation, to be able to go out, identify things that can have broad impact that's measurable, and then we support them in the goals that they have to get to that social change. And they support the foundation by leveraging their interests with other fund holders at the foundation so that we can get things done and build philanthropy while we're building the community. So it's an aggregation of donors uh, which use the central infrastructure of your foundation and direct the giving. Does it focus mostly on just Orange County and Orlando? What is the scope of where you attract donors from and where you uh, give your monies to? So we are uh, technically a community foundation and uh, community is something that means something different to everybody you talk to. First of all, if you're older and you're an American and I say the word community to you, you usually think in terms of geography of where you live. And so that might be counties or regions or a state. But if you're younger and I say the word community to you, you typically respond by asking what kind of community am I talking about? Because younger folks have virtual communities, they have social communities, they have communities of like-minded people, they have goals and they come around different kinds of communities to try to solve problems. And so the foundation actually makes grants around the world. The vast majority of our grants are made in a seven county region across central Florida. But we make grants as far away as India and Europe uh, to things that people who are from those geographic locations who've come here to build businesses or build families, uh, those places are still their communities. And so we try to support them uh, by doing the work that they want to do uh, in all of the communities that they might have in their portfolio. Uh, and the contributors, are they mostly from Central Florida region? No, uh, oddly enough, Central Florida is a pretty uh, transient place. Uh, it's becoming a little more mature now after the years, but 1,500 people a week move here uh, and 75 million tourists a year visit here. Uh, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, making, I'm taking this from academic to simplicity. But it wouldn't be unusual for you to come to Central Florida almost anywhere in the world on vacation in spring or fall and decide this is the place you want to live and then right. ultimately move here because of typically the weather experience. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I can vouch for that. I moved here from New Jersey two years ago myself. Um, <laughs> there now, you go. <laughs> you know, our viewers come from all over the world, including uh, some parts of the, the world where uh, poverty and needs are very dire. And the impression some of uh, the people might have is U.S. is such a rich country. The average earning capacity is 42,000 and median household income is 70,000 or more. Is poverty or needs which need uh, charitable giving a real and a growing issue in the United States? It is. And that's a great question because uh, one person's vision of poverty is another person's vision of uh, being on the way up to something, right? But the reality yes. is that in America, you will find there are sections of America in which poverty is the core social problem that drives everything from housing difficulties to wage inequity to hunger to lots of other issues. In other words, uh, those are all symptoms of poverty, and we tend to want to solve the thing that's simplest to solve instead of going after the complex thing, and poverty is the complex thing. Uh, and, and the other part of this, I mean, technology is making life better for everyone. And uh, if you read blogs from Bill Gates or Factfulness, there is good evidence that life has actually become much better for most people uh, over over past few decades. Do you think the situation is becoming better or worse? I think it's becoming better. It's becoming better uh, in an inequitable fashion. That's the real problem. Uh, and, and I would just say to you that America is, is built on a long history of meritocracy. The thought that the best and the brightest who get educated will always rise to the top. And those who don't uh, either didn't work hard enough or they didn't get the right breaks, but it's nobody's fault but theirs. And that meritocracy shrouds American values and sometimes makes it difficult to have people see the world outside of whatever bubble they live in. So if you live in a poverty bubble, your sense of the world may be there's no hope and nowhere for you to go to get anything better than what you've got. If you live in a wealth bubble, your vision of the world may be you worked hard, you got there, and anybody who didn't, it isn't your fault. And so this is a constant clash. It's been going on in America for a couple of hundred years. This isn't something new. <laughs> but right. what it does, it creates incredible opportunity for people who come here from places where the opportunity doesn't exist, but it also sometimes creates shackles for people who live here who don't have access to the same opportunities where they were born. Hmm. And in terms of how we address the problem, America is also somewhat uh, unique in the world. Americans are simply in number terms, some of the biggest donors who give a lot to philanthropic events or, or charities. Uh, and government has significant, but probably more limited than most other developed countries uh, programs right. available. How do you see that playing out? Do you see the role of government increasing? Do you see the role of uh, individuals changing over time? Uh, as you see 
the whole space of giving go through a generational uh, transition with baby boomers uh, getting, you know, moving their wealth through the next generation at some point. So I think if you look back over at least the last hundred years, you've seen a kind of a TikTok effect uh, for the question that you've asked. So there are times in America in history where government has done more and now may be doing less. And by the way, when government does anything around social issues, they almost always do it by funding a nonprofit to go do it. And many times they don't fund them well enough to go actually tackle the problem that they're trying to tackle. So even when government is funding things, there's a need for philanthropists, investors, donors to come to the table and be a part of that equation. I think right now we're, we've slid to the point where philanthropy is relied on maybe more heavily than it should be for some of the, the crisis points in America. But I also think that that will slip back the other way as time goes on. And when the public sector and the philanthropic sectors get together, uh, they actually are a lot more powerful working together than they are uh, one delegating the problem to the other. And so if I took you back uh, even 50 years in America, there was a value or a culture, mostly among baby boomers and those who were older, to give back. So whatever success or wealth I might have earned here, I kind of felt the need to give back. Uh, and, and then also giving back is incentivized in America. Uh, allowing you tax benefits so that you can give the money to people you might like rather than giving it to the government. And so that was always a that was always a bit of a what I would call an incentive for people who wanted to give back. Over the last 10 years or so, it's taken a, a kind of a, a shift more toward people selecting things they actually care about and then making more direct investments into solving for those problems. So healthcare, education, arts and culture, human services, the faith-based community, environmental uh, things, these are all part of the nonprofit sector. So in the old days where you might uh, have given back to a church, synagogue, a mosque, or to uh, the entire well-being of your community, today you're more likely to say, I'm really gonna focus my time and effort on X, and you tend to put your dollars into that space. So this is constantly changing stuff. It's constantly moving back and forth. And I, I think what you see is that politics moves that, uh, social condition moves that. You know, in the environmental sector, uh, sector right now, uh, the big movement of climate change is finally having an impact on people, making them think more than once about who can actually solve for this, and do I need to be involved, and do I need to be an investor in more than just paying taxes in order to get that done. So yeah. the thing that the field so amazing is that there are all these opportunities and challenges and it just takes bringing people together to go after them. Yeah, we, we hear a lot about the younger generation, the millennials, uh, uh, folks who are coming after the baby boomers who are, seem to be saying that I would probably care so much about certain issues that I'm willing to work for maybe even lower pay and certainly have it as a factor in the way I work and spend my money. Do you see the next generation which will inherit 
this vast wealth that is going to transition being more philanthropic or philanthropic in a different way? I think philanthropic. In your own donor base, do you see yeah. uh, a 30-year-old or for the next generation of people who had set up the foundations, are they behaving yeah. and asking different questions? Yes, they are. Uh, in fact, they're, they tend to be far more strategic and they're, they're more focused on things they can get their hands around. And by that, I mean, if you look at the entire millennial cohort, their uh, transactional giving to the nonprofit sector is actually down over the last several years. But if you look at where they give, it's not that they're giving less, they're just not giving it the same way. So millennials are more likely to want to give to a GoFundMe fund for a friend who was injured in an accident and has no insurance than they are to make gifts to the American Heart Association to help people with heart disease, right? It's just a different approach to doing it. And also the millennial uh, cohort and the one behind them, Gen Z, are far more technically focused, right? They were brought up on technology. And so they have a global vision. And in some cases, they may not be aware that there are people doing important work at the end of their street because they're connected more globally through technology. Right. Um, that brings me to the topic uh, of effective altruism, which is something that I've been reading up on, and it, it got a lot of press uh, recently through unfortunate circumstances of uh, some debacle. But uh, the essential argument there is that uh, a dollar spent in, let's say, Africa, for example, goes further than a dollar spent in U.S. if you measure it in terms of number of years added to human life. What do you say to them being a community-based foundation? Uh, would you, how, how should one allocate their thinking or giving between uh, increasing from a relatively well-off place to uh, um, a remote place which you can't see or feel connected to? Sure. Well, you know, look, there's a positive to the fact that there are places in the world where money goes further. You know, if you and I were uh, very passionate about education and we wanted to do more for school age children, if we did it in America, we might build a charter school and create curriculum for it. We'd have to build a bricks and mortar building. We'd have to hire a bunch of people to do it in India we could actually create a school in a village that would run for less than a dollar US a day. For $365 in one year, we could educate a whole village full of children with a passionate teacher and some supplies to get that done. So if you're thinking transactionally, you might go, well, why did I spend all that money in America when I could have such a bigger impact on education in India? But it would really depend on your values and your passion for the place, your community, right? Mm -hmm. Whether or not that would make sense. And so I think that people wrestle with that. But if you're more than transactional, if you're strategic at some level, that decision becomes more important. It might become more important to give more money to, to, that have to, to do things that cost more money in a place where the outcome matters. So the long answer to your question is, the effective way to be altruistic is to measure the outcomes you're trying to produce instead of measuring the process. 
What happens too often is people who are transactional are very process focused. So if you ask them for a dollar, they'll want to see every place you're going to spend the dollar. Then they'll go down the list and say, well, I don't really want to fund this. I don't want to fund that. If on the other hand, I said to you, here's what we can create, produce, or change with your dollar, but you don't get to tell us how to spend it. Uh, that's a better philanthropic investment. Yeah. And how much you value would come back to, as you said, how do you define your community? How do you define your linkages? Yes, absolutely. There, I, I know very few philanthropists that are like, hey, I, I got a million dollars. Where's the cheapest place in the world I can put it to get something good? Done? <laughs> it's not like uh, bu buying a commodity that you just go to the cheapest place to buy a ton of goodwill. <laughs> I have to remind private sector people sometimes that there's no buying low and selling high in philanthropy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's change gears. Uh, let's talk about your journey. Uh, you have uh, spent a lifetime uh, working in this sector. How, how did that come about? What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Sure. Um, you know, I have a mentee who asked me the other day, she said to me, she said, I want to do what you're doing. How did you get there? What did you do when you were my age to, to get to where you are today? And I explained to her that I didn't. I had no idea where I was going and that what I am today is really just a collection of all the experiences and things I went through. Mm -hmm. So I was born in the mid Midwest in uh, Indiana and uh, grew up with uh, two sisters, the son of a General Motors executive. Mm -hmm. And he was transferred every 18 months, whether he needed to be or not. So I was a little like an army brat. Uh, I went to four different high schools. Uh, I lived in six or seven different cities as I was uh, growing up. So I, I constantly got experiences with people who were dramatically different from me. Now, I've read enough books on child psychology that that sounds like a horrible thing. But I can tell you, for me, it really scoped my entire life in the realization that I could live in a world of people that weren't like me. Uh, and I could bring something to that, but I could also look at people who didn't uh, think like I did every day. Mm -hmm. But I, uh, when I graduated from high school and then went to college, uh, my first stop was at uh, Arizona State University. And uh, I, I came out of college as a journalist, and it was what I was really passionate about. I worked uh, at local radio stations and then eventually became a a West Coast correspondent for a network, and then went on to be a network radio anchor for a time, and then back to the station side where I managed uh, news talk radio stations in, in four cities. And I got to a point one day where I decided that while I'd been doing a lot of reporting on business, what I really wanted to do was be in the thick of business, fixing it and figuring out how to make it better. So back to school, I went and out with a graduate degree, I became a management consultant. Mm -hmm. And as a management consultant, uh, I was attracted to mergers and acquisitions, and that's where I worked uh, for the better part of, of 10 years before I had uh, an epiphany one day. I, I recognized that while I was working in big mergers and acquisitions and, and enjoying it, the end result of all that were companies that were restructured, somebody made a lot of money, and a lot of people got laid off to reduce costs. And I wasn't actually making the world a better place. I was just making it better for a certain 
class of investors. So I began to take my skills to the nonprofit sector, and I then, over a period of a few years, completely transitioned my practice to only doing mergers and acquisitions in the nonprofit sector. I spent some the time. The M&A activity in nonprofit sector? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So there's a continuing process of trying to build healthy, sustainable organizations. And sometimes that means putting more than one of them together into a superstructure that can do it better, faster, cheaper, smarter. And that so led me- Talk about that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but no, no, that's I okay. want, to, want to pick on that epiphany that you talked about. Uh, what brought that about? Was that, was that an advice for someone? Was that a life experience? Was it an aha moment or was it a journey? Uh, it was an aha moment that came at the end of a journey. Uh, and, and I think the journey for me was recognizing that if you could build strong organizations that did good things, had good outcomes, that you could literally change the world. Now, you can certainly do that in private sector business, but most of the M&A activity there were finding ways to reduce costs and finding ways to increase outputs that would create more profit. Nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, that wasn't as fulfilling to me as creating organizations that would go out and take on some really complex social problems and try to find ways to solve them. Um, well, you do good, good work pretty much day in, day out. Uh, but like everyone else, I'm sure you've you've looked back at some things and said, I wish that turned out differently. What has yeah. been a, a failure that you had to face um, in your journey? And uh, how did that change you? So for me, I think it's been the constant battle over the last several years with issues around homelessness. Uh, in a country that has so much we have this continuing problem with homelessness. And when you can rally all three sectors, the independent sector, nonprofits, the public sector, and the private sector, when you can bring them all together uh, to bring money and intelligence and solutions, you can make great progress at it. It's hard to keep people's attention over a longer period of time. So I, I and the foundation here, we've been through a couple of incidents over the last 10 years, 12 years, where we've made incredible strides forward, but we didn't get to a finish point because the issue that we're dealing with is not a problem, it's a dilemma. And, and this is a hard thing to wrap your head around. Problems have solutions. We, we look at something and we say, well, if you do X, Y will happen. But dilemmas are complex social situations that sometimes have unintended consequences. You fix one side of the machine and the other side breaks down. And now you're right back to where you started. And so having been through that journey over the last several years, uh, it, it doesn't take away any of my enthusiasm. We keep uh, coming back trying to find new ways to approach these issues. And we've made great progress. But I would just like in my lifetime for Americans to come together on a, a handful of things that matter most and actually see it through to solution instead of another shining shiny object getting their attention and pulling them away. Well, certainly uh, uh, some of the politics these days feels like that. It seems like a lot of uh, 
relatively uh, rational people looking at the same situation very differently and coming at uh, situations where things just don't move forward uh, in making change and impact. Um, do you, did, what did you take away from that? Of course, there is a wish that uh, you would like to see that happen. But is there something that you've taken away and say, look, this may be the next time around, I'm going to try it this, this different way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, uh, at some point, a lot of what we do in philanthropy has to be either powered by or done in conjunction with policy change. And unfortunately, uh, many times people think only about policy. Let's just get the right people elected and get some laws passed and everything will work out. Or they think only in terms of philanthropy. Let's get more people to give. We'll get more money and then maybe we'll solve the problem. And that doesn't work. You got to do these two in conjunction. And America has to get to the point where everyone looks at issues not through political lenses or through strictly how can we get people to give or change laws, but with all of these solutions on the table. And people from all three sectors do that very well. So I, my sense is the next time, as we continue, it's not the next time, we're still involved in this. It's getting a bigger group of people at the table to think through what we do. Right now we're working on housing and trying to find a way to create more attainable housing for people who uh, you know, have a wage gap. And for what they earn, there are large sectors within the region where they can't live. Uh, they just don't make enough to live there without a lot of roommates, right? If that's an option. And so we now we've made the circle so large. We have 37, I think now, community leaders from all three sectors working through policy issues, philanthropy issues, public sector money issues. How can we bring developers and other business people around the table to go after these issues uh, with less expense? How can we use strategies like, like land trusts and other ways to actually create uh, the, the opportunity for people to rent and buy housing that they can actually attain? They've got enough money to get in and then they can afford after they get there. Hmm. Okay, well, that certainly is a, a tough challenge, and I can I can almost feel uh, the complexity of managing through three different uh, streams and thirty seven people. Um, <laughs> let's uh, try some some things lighter to close this out. Uh, tell us if you were at a UN conference where the whole cuisine of the world was present, what would you fill your plate with? So what's your favorite cuisine? So that's a great question. So this I, is now a section called On the Spot. Quick the question. Spot. Yeah, quick answer. Whatever pops in your mind is the right answer. That's a great question. Look, I'm a big fan of Italian food, uh, but I, I spent uh, a good deal of time recently in India and got to sample a broad variety of foods I had never had before and was really impressed by it. I think I'm I'm open to loading up my plate with several uh, uh, foods from different cuisines. I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. Um, if you had a free afternoon, you had a three-hour commitment somewhere, and it got canceled at the last minute, what would you do? 
I would either go for a hike, which is my favorite thing to do. I just like to be out in the woods, putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, all the complex stuff I work on, which is so challenging. Uh, I remember when I go for a walk in the woods, that is just putting one foot in front of the other until you get to the end. And it is oh, a great, really it's a great mental kind of relaxer for me. Uh, so did uh, all the philosophers of the antiquity, the the walking school is well known. Yes, that's um, right. What is your biggest concern about the world state right now? I, I'm concerned that we aren't talking to each other enough about the things we share. I, I feel like we're we're drawing lines around geographies and cultures and people. We've we've gone from being a, a large group of people all headed in a single uh, positive direction to a group of classes that didn't get along. Now we're kind of just a bunch of identities who uh, we we've all got our own issues and we really only care about our issues. I'd, I'd love to get back to a place where we could sit down with people around the world and in conjunction with some strategy and planning, work toward solving problems. Who's the best or the biggest philanthropist ever in your view? <laughs> that is a tough question. So, <laughs> so my sense is, I think in terms of not individual philanthropists, but philanthropists who bring together um, other investors to go after solving for complex problems. And so in many ways, uh, that guy is probably Bill Gates, only because he's a guy who, uh, when he was young, his mother was in charge of a United Way campaign, and she made him go along door to door. And because of that experience of volunteering, when he became the richest guy in the world, he built the biggest foundation in the world. And it's just a reminder to me that wealth doesn't make philanthropy. It's your life experience that makes it. And so you can get very rich and then never be a philanthropist if you never had that experience when you were young. Well, this has been wonderful, uh, Mark. My last question, what is brand Mark Brewer in your own words? You know, I'm I'm just a simple guy who's really honored to have the job I do. I couldn't I couldn't get this job if I didn't have it, right? I would, I would have no idea how to go out in the world and find this job. And what it allows me to do is to work with some pretty incredible people who are very passionate about solving complex problems. And I'm honored to work with a team here at the foundation who puts their heart and soul into everything they do. Thank you. There you have it, Mark Brewer, a humble man, but with grand vision. Thank you for being on our show, Mark. Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, Mark, I'm going to record the introduction because I fumbled a bit. So I'm going to just take a second and record it again. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to the show, The Brand Called You. I'm your host, Sandeep Tiagi. The brand we are speaking to today is Mark Brewer, the CEO of Central Florida Foundation. He has spent decades in Central Florida Foundation, as well as several other not-for-profit organizations. Welcome to our show, Mark. Thank you for listening to the brand called You videocast and podcast. A 
platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called Youth.